Welcome to Dial It In, a podcast where we talk with interesting people about the process improvements and tricks they use to grow their businesses. I'm Dave Meyer, president of BusyWeb, and every week, Trig Olson and I are bringing you interviews on how the best in their fields are dialing it in for their organizations. I have a real treat for you, Dave, today. Uh, Great. With, with our guest. I've known this guy forever. I met him in a arc in the middle of the winter, in the middle of the night, I think. Okay. But let me tell you a little uh-huh. bit about him before we bring him on. His college job, uh, no, I'm sorry, his high school job was he would set up and topple domino displays at car dealerships for money. Okay. okay. Usually about 25,000 dominoes. Mm-hmm. He was a Big Ten male cheerleader for four years. He is a trained tumbling sword fighter and a trained stuntman. There was a, a movie filmed here, here in Minnesota called Drop Dead Fred a long time ago. He was the stunt double for Fred. <laughs> Perfect. Beyond all that, he's a great communicator. He's an amazing guy, and he's got a great story to tell. He hosts a podcast called Collecting Confidence. And so please welcome our guest today is John Barrett. Hey, John. Hi, it's great to be here. Uh, That Now, now, as level setting, that's true, right? That's where you and I met was probably in the dark. Yeah, that sounds weird, though, doesn't it? But yeah, that was, uh, we. I meet a lot of people in the dark, in the park, in the wintertime. Right. Right. Part so of the hobby. All, we're, we're all bundled up. John and I have a weird hobby uh, in that uh, we hunt for a, uh, a Winter Carnival treasure medallion. And for those people who don't live in Minnesota, one of the things we do to pass the time during the winter is we hide a little piece of lucite plastic in the snow. And then the newspaper publishes clues every day on where it is and go to find it. So a lot of my best friends I've met at two in the morning over a, a <laughs> bottle of Rippin Schnapps. And John is one of those people. Sounds about right. So, John, I laid out a whole bunch of things that you've done in your life. You have <laughs> such a, a wide variety and, and interesting thing, but I think uh, interesting life. But I think one of the things that, as I've known you for as long as I have, is that you're always just genuine and positive. So, how do you start every day? Just I being so just generally affable. <laughs> well, I think that some of it is how you're wired. So. Even though I'm in the Midwest, which is where we're kind of grumpy old men. That's, I think, why they shot up here was it was so easy to find extras. But I think that some of it is, uh, for a while, uh, for example, I was working at Gillette Children's Hospital. And they do some fantastic things there. But I see people who have a much worse life than I do, or at least a much worse dealing of cards or whatever. The hand that they got dealt is significantly different. And I look at what my problems are, and my problems seem pretty small compared to theirs. And so some of it is that perspective. And I think that just as a whole, I think our country is doing a lot better off than many other countries. And we just don't understand what some people are living through. I think back to the Sally Struthers commercials, and you you see the things that are going on in other countries, and you go, well, how can that be going on? That's ridiculous. But it really is. We just don't know it. We're very sheltered from that. So some of it is waking up knowing it could be worse. And I think that I think that there's a 
a survivor mentality. Part of it was I thought for sure I was going to die, oh, in my late teens and early 20s just because of gymnastics and stunt work. So to me, every day is a victory lap. I didn't think I would be here. And I did a lot of stupid stuff and could have been taken out of the play at any time. I guess it's what happens when you grow up with Wile E. Coyote as your male role model. So I look at every day as if it's a victory lap. Well, I, I can't speak for Dave, but I really want to dive into the stupid stuff. So <laughs> I think that might be fun. And yeah, it's it's it kind of it kind of points back to how old we are, right? That we we weren't fully helmeted and or even right. probably seat belted when we were younger. And here we are. But I'm so loving how you're already, you know, talking that's it's so far ahead of just being a victim of what life throws at you right and your and Mm -hmm. your sphere of influence if it's an internal locus of control versus an external locus of control right so you own your way of being in the world that's awesome Mm -hmm. and i i when did you come to this realization because the reason why i ask is you know i work in sales and, and one of the things you have to deal with in sales is just a constant state of rejection Right. It's that 85% of the time people are going to say no to you. And that's okay. And the books all say, oh, you, you just got to get used to it. You have to develop a callus. You have to develop a fixed in. You just have to get going. And I faked it for a long time. And then I got to the point where it didn't bother me anymore. And I've never quite been able to put my finger on when I got to the point, either in my maturity for what it is, or my professional career or that stopped bothering you more. So how, when did that happen for you? Well, I think when I was younger, I tried a lot of stuff and some of it worked and some of it didn't. And I got used to the fact that it wasn't all going to work. And as I got a little bit older, there were so many people that put their value and their worth, their self-worth into whether or not something worked. And so if I had a good day at the baseball game, I was a good person. If I had a good day at work, I was a good person. And I, I didn't see it that way. I've, I've worked as a waiter, for example. And as a waiter, I took care of this table. I did everything for this table. I got no tip at all. That doesn't mean I wasn't a good waiter. It's just how it goes sometimes. And I think that, I guess it's how you look at it. It's mindset. It's really what most of it is, is mindset. But I just got to the point where I didn't give people that much value over me. I didn't give events that much value over me. If something didn't work, it didn't work. If my garden doesn't grow, it doesn't grow. If the squirrels get everything, they get everything. That's the way it is. But it's hard because so many people, that's all they do. They do that one thing. Like if we were going to be looking for the medallion, if that's what we do all year, we plan for it, we study for it. If we don't find that medallion, we're horrible people and we had a terrible year. But we never thought of it that way. We just were out. We were having fun. It was a great time. And we learned more about the the uh, city. So I think it is that mindset. And as, as I started approaching things, I just decided it's it's up to me to be happy or it's up to me to be sad and not to let other people and other events really bring me down like that. Well, I, I, I want to keep going on that subject, but I, I don't want to get away from the stupid stuff too far. So how it's does... Hard. <laughs> It always comes back. <laughs> you were a gymnast in high school. Mm-hmm. And then when you got, you went to the University of Minnesota for college. Yep. Yeah. 
and and you became uh, uh, what is almost a, a cliche of being laughed at is a male <laughs> cheerleader. Exactly. Yes, what it's even about becoming a male cheerleader. Well, what happened was when I was in school, I was doing screwy stuff, running around the gym in art of film class. And I don't know why, but we decided we'd do this movie about a bank robbery. And at some point, the character got thrown out of a car at 40 miles an hour. And so I had the camera and I shot over the driver's shoulder, looked at the speedometer, and then rolled out of the car with the camera in my hands. Now, we had padded the camera, so it was taken care of. And the teacher was... We padded the camera. We didn't pad me. But some of, it, some, some of it was, I knew how to fall. I knew how to roll in gymnastics was giving me that, that skill. But yet, when my teacher saw me and doing screwball-y stuff, he said, you should go out for gymnastics. And I did. When I went to the University of Minnesota, I thought, oh, I'll join the gymnastics team. They had a really good program under Fred Roethlisberger. But the guys that were there were counting calories, eating rice cakes, and doing two-a-day practices. And they had a really, really good guy named Tom Karen. And Tom did the exact same events that I would do. And, and he was way better than me. There was no way I was going to beat him. And so it ended up that I was a little saddened. But I thought, well, I guess I won't be a gymnast. And a friend of mine had an older brother who was a cheerleader and said, he wants to talk to you. And said, you know, you can still do gymnastics if you go out for cheerleading and you get into the games for free and not to be crude, but the women literally line up to jump up and sit on your hand. And I thought, well, that seems like a, not a bad uh, way to go through school. Mm -hmm. So tried out, made the squad and was on the squad for a couple of years. And then also got the opportunity. I don't know if I can say this, but the, the women's athletics didn't have access to the mascot so they bought their own suit and had me be the mascot for one year for the women's athletics so i was a rodent for a while oh fun i didn't know that for those who, who are, are listening what's the what's the university of minnesota mascot the, the gopher the golden gold, the golden gopher. gopher yes it's not exactly a rabid wolverine or a badger but we, we, it's we hold fierce on. i'm sure it's right. fierce in its own way <laughs> What was the? I I had I have you on because I want to talk about confidence. So, what's it like on a college campus being a male cheerleader? Is I'm assuming that the the cliche comes from somewhere, and well, being I, genuinely positive. And I think, as you put it, you had a much different viewpoint than a lot of people had. How did that affect your daily life? I mean, it's kind of interesting. I was a theater arts major as well, so I got a lot of different stereotypes that. Being a theaters major, a guy cheerleader, uh, I sing barbershops, I sing in an all-male chorus. So I had a lot of things going against me if we really got into the nitty-gritty of what was going on in my life. But I also got to hang around with all these beautiful women on the cheerleading squad and the dance line squad. And so I think that as I went around, I didn't, I didn't care as much about what other people thought, but I felt a sense of pride because I knew I got into the game for free. I knew I got to be down on the field, and I knew that I had a skill set and an ability to do stuff in front of other people that other, you know, other people wouldn't do. And so I thought, well, this is kind of nice. What, what was your favorite memory of being a cheer, cheerleader? The very first year that I was on the squad was the very last year of the Brick House. And we used to take a parade down university 
turn the corner and go in the brick house. And so that to me was the coolest thing when you'd turn that corner and you'd just come into the stadium and there'd be 60,000 people or whatever. And deep down, I thought they were all there to see me, but I knew they weren't. But it was just a nice thing to open it up and say, oh, this is college cheerleading. This is college football. This is my school. And I really loved that. And when they went to the Dome, I did the first two years at the Dome as well. That just wasn't the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had, I, I, growing up going to the Dome, I didn't really know that there was another world out there <laughs> that you could enjoy sports. And so when the Twins started saying they wanted a new stadium, I was like, well, why? This is great. Yeah, right. So, okay. So uh, the, the second thing before we get on the subject of stupid stuff, before we start talking more about confidence is how on earth do you become a, a, a stunt man? Well, what happened was I was goofing around in the gym and I used to do really weird stuff, belly flops from great heights and things like that, kind of an all-star wrestling sort of a thing. And I would do this really mean thing where I would find some attractive gymnast who was up there working out in the gym and I'd pretend to be meek and mild and say, could you please spot me for just a round off backflip? And I'd probably be right here and I'd point about six feet in front of me. And then I'd do this really fast round off that went about 25 feet, go up about nine or 10 feet in the air on the spring floor and just land in a belly flop. And there's no way she was going to catch me or even catch up to me. And then she'd be just so, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And of course, it was just goofing off. And I probably did that 10 times every day to different people that came into the gym. And the coach of the gym, Fred Roethlisberger, saw that. And at some point, a choreographer came to the gym and said, I'm looking for people who can tumble to do this opera up in Canada. And Fred, I think Fred didn't want to lose anybody who was on the, uh, the roster, the current roster. He didn't want to lose any of his people. So he took some alumni people and gave them my name as well and said, this guy's crazy, take him. And so we went up there and worked for about six to eight weeks to get a a fight scene built into an opera called Ronaldo with Marilyn Horn and Sam Raimi. And then Canada gave that to the Metropolitan Opera. And at, at the end of it, what happened was, and this is, most of the stuff I do is to jerk people's chains, as it turns out, as I'm thinking of these things. But we were doing fight scenes and someone would do a round off and we'd pop them up into the air and then catch them and then turn and toss him off stage. And he would just be kind of limp, but then do a dive roll on a mat that you couldn't see. But it just looked like we were tossing bodies off into the wings. And as we were going to show it to the director for the first time, I said, hey, let's, let's get this director. We'll teach him. And I'll do one, but I'll just do a belly flop. You guys just turn and walk away, and I'll just do that belly flop thing. And they were like, yeah, okay, whatever. And so we did that. The director came down, and we were showing him how we were killing people. And then I started making this ploy of, come on, guys, let me do it. Let me do it. Come on, throw me. You never let me do it. And so the choreographer knew something was up because he knew that wasn't my normal character. And I guess the director was about ready to fire me on the spot. But when I did this belly flop, he just was like, <gasps> and, and then we all kind of laughed. And he's like, wait, you can do that without dying? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Cheap parlor tricks. He goes, that has to be the final death scene. So that became the final death scene of the, you know, when the timpanies, and when it went out to New York, 
they got all new people to do the tumbling. And these were all kids, fantastic tumblers that had learned double backs on asphalt. They didn't have mats. They were street tumblers. But when they showed them the belly flop, of course, you don't do a belly flop on asphalt. And they were like, no, we can't do that. And so they brought me back out there to do a season with them and then tour for a season with them to do the belly flop at the end. And I was able to bring the guy who had tossed me up in Canada, which was Tom Karen, the guy who was so good at the U of M. So the two of us were out in New York and then went on tour and just doing this belly flop. And when I came back, word, word came out that, you know, I was doing that kind of stuff. And I was working at KSTP as a camera operator and they were looking for someone to do stunt work for a movie called Drop Dead Fred. And Joe Schmidt and Ed Cairo and one other, Gary Lumpkin, knew me enough to talk to the choreographer and say, yeah, there's a guy we got that might be able to do that. So I just went and they said, okay, come on and do this. And I had no idea what the movie was or anything like that. But, you know, Carrie Fisher and Phoebe Cates and some people started showing up on set. I was like, wow, this is a big thing. But I just, I didn't realize it at the time. And most of the stunts were not very difficult, but they need to have someone on set in case the director wants to see something or do something because they have to protect their people. So after that, I started doing commercials and a couple other uh, movies and things that, you know, just corporate safety videos and things. But it's just because I could throw myself around and not get hurt, I guess. So for a year of your life, you got killed six nights a week. Oh, it's great. Well, actually, the Sunday funny thing, yeah, the funny thing was, is out there, the Met rotates stuff around. So you would work on a Monday and then you didn't perform again until the next Tuesday. So what happened was I got hired to do like hold the spear by the door for the, you know, the third show. So I, we were the first show, then there was a third show. And then there was a couple of other places on Broadway that knew that we were around and knew of our schedule and said, we're doing Pagliacci. Can you come in on day four and be the clowns that are the circus as they come in? And so I was, I worked, I don't know, four or five different shows in addition to the one we were doing at the Met. It was, I mean, it, I guess we were, we must have been talked about by the people in the theater going, hey, can we borrow them for a while? <laughs> but most of the stuff wasn't, it was like do a cartwheel down the aisle. Okay, I probably would anyway if I was going to see the show, so. I, I'm stunned, but what, let's get back to the, <laughs> the, the topic at hand, which is confidence and mindset. Uh, yeah. You started your own podcast recently. You're well ahead of ours, so you're. this is our fourth episode. You're in 56 episodes. Tell us about your podcast. Well, it got started because I was in Toastmasters, and one of the things Toastmasters does is they teach you to speak, and now they say, now that you know how to speak, go out into the world and speak. So one of the tasks or assignments was to do a podcast, and you really only had to do one, but I don't do anything in moderation, so I decided, okay, I'll just dive into this, and now I'm... I, just put out my 58th episode. But it's interesting. It's, it, the design was to talk about confidence. And there's no, you don't just take a pill and suddenly gain confidence. It's something that you gain over time. And so some skills, you, you can see yourself, you watch yourself get better. And some skills you can pick up quickly because you've got other skill sets that are close or you get lucky. You're wired that way. But there's still... Even if you're confident in one area, 
you might not be confident in another area. Like I'm very confident when it comes to being in front of thousands of people. I'm not very confident when I'm doing my taxes because that has math involved. So you can have confidence in some areas and not in others. And the other thing is that people perceive that you have confidence. People would look at me and say, oh, he's very confident. No, I'm quaking in my boots, but I'm really good at not letting you see that. So I think that one of the things that I learned was, well, the biggest thing I learned was that confidence means different things to different people. And that was the hardest thing. It was like, I will help the world find out what, you know, how to get confidence. I'm still trying to figure out what it is because it means something different to everyone. And to some people, it's, I'm sure I can do anything. Which, you know, I'm pretty certain I can't do everything, but that's what it meant to some people. And so uh, that's been the hardest thing for me is trying to nail down. And in fact, that's the first question I ask in every one of the podcasts is, what does confidence mean to you? Because I just want to set the base for what are we looking at? And then I, I think, you know, we're just, we're all in this together. Nobody is super confident. They might look confident, mm -hmm. but if you, if you look at the superstars, the actresses, the singers, Barbara Streisand, who has a fantastic voice and an incredible career, but she didn't perform live for 35 years or something because she lacked that confidence to be in front of people. And so it seems like people that should have confidence don't always have confidence. We don't understand that. But in the same way, we shouldn't worry if we're not confident about something, we're in good company. And and so that's where the name collecting confidence comes from right and of course for for our listeners collectingconfidence.com make sure that you check it out and download it so do you do you have for for your podcast guests and for folks that you've talked to so far is there a unified theme or something that everyone that has collected confidence or has made significant leaps forward in their confidence that they have done i would say the Biggest theme that I'm seeing run under everything is the more you do, mm -hmm. the more confident you'll be because it's that wealth of knowledge and how does this apply to that? And if, if all you do, if you're very siloed in your knowledge, you're learning your experience, you won't know how to do something else. And I think that that's what I've seen is that the people that do more, even if they do it wrong, just because they've done more, they understand what what that next thing is because I kind of dabbled in this, I kind of dabbled in that. So this thing makes sense to me. And so it's a function of expertise. Yeah. And it's it's uh it's the experience, not even being the expert, but being experienced in it. And I would I know that when I was in high school, I was a gymnast and I was helping uh I was a manager for the women's gymnastics team. And so I was helping them do stunts that I didn't know how to do, but I knew what they needed to do in order to do it. And I remember once I was up at the lake and they were trying to help people go water skiing and people just weren't getting it and they're letting their legs go apart and falling flat on their face. And I went down to the water and I started coaching them and helping them and teaching them how to keep your feet together and bend your knees and lean back and hold on. And people started to be able to water ski. And I did that for about four hours, helped people water ski. And at some point, we ran out of people to get up on water skis. And the guy in the boat said, do you want to go? And I said, oh, I've never water skied before. And I, 
And I had never watered zucchini before. But because of gymnastics, I knew what needed to be done. I knew where you needed to go and what you needed to do. I did end up go water skiing that day, but I had not water skied, but I got 30, 40 people, you know, taught them to water ski. And that to me is sort of what I see is that if you know other areas, you can apply them to a, a new area. And that helps with the confidence because it's, it's not totally new. It's sort of tangible. I kind of know this because I kind of did that. And some of it is, we see it in computer programs where you get a new computer program. Well, this is sort of like that. And some of the skills are the same. And so if you've got a new software program that you're trying to understand, this is kind of like how Excel does it, or this is kind of how Word does it. Copy paste is the same. So some Mm -hmm. of those things, you, you, take the skills from the other thing and push it forward into the new thing. It doesn't have to be as scary. But I think the other thing is that people start to realize that there are a lot of other people out there that are feeling the same way. They're feeling the lack of confidence. And so it's hard for some people to reach out and ask for help and to reach out, maybe get a mentor. But that can be so helpful just to have somebody say, no, it's okay if you don't know it. We'll, we'll teach it to you. We'll, we'll get you to understand it. So as we're talking about confidence being a a subset of expertise and uh, reps at bats, so to speak, how does something like improv fit into that where the entire concept is you're making it up as you go? Well, welcome to the real world because the whole world is improv. Today is improv, tomorrow's improv. We'll just make it up as we go along. And we don't realize that. We put improv up on a pedestal like, ooh, that's so tough. Someone, he has to say something and then say another thing. We do that all day long. That's how, that's how we do it. When you're doing improv comedy, I think it is a little hard because there's a lot of different nuances and timing and things that you have to understand and you have to know the audience because what's improv funny to one group isn't to another different topics that just don't work well. But I think that the ability to improv to do stuff is really helpful. It's it's fantastic in the business setting because you're pushing forward with things. You're doing yes and rather than saying no. And if you go into that meeting and someone says, I know, maybe let's go global. And the peanut gallery in the back goes, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Well, then that person's never going to put forth another idea because they've been shunned in front of the whole group. So it's really important that we are trying to do that improv. We're trying to do yes and move stuff forward rather than pull, pull people down. And I think just from a leadership point of view, there's a lot of people out there with baseball caps and a whistle. And some of them are coaches and some of them are referees. And I think there's a lot of people that are just looking to be a referee rather than to help you and move you forward and coach you. So it's really important when you're surrounding yourself, surround yourself with the coaches who are pulling you forward rather than referees who are just waiting for you to make a mistake. I think uh, as somebody who's done a lot of improv comedy and who thinks of himself as somewhat funnier than he actually is, the best understanding of it that I've gotten is you don't all, you, the, the concept is never to go for the thing. You don't go for a laugh. You just keep going. And eventually the laughs and the comedy tend to work themselves out. Right. And that's, I think, just the situation and adding to the situation. My brother does improv down in North Carolina. And it was like, well, I'm glad you got here. You know, so the first person comes in and sets that up. And someone says, yeah, well, it's always fun to be in a gun store. 
And so, you know, all of a sudden you just have to go with that. And now you're in like, a gun store. Yeah. Where are the kids? Oh, they're over in the children's section. You know, so it was just one of those silly things where it just got sillier and sillier, but you have to rather than say, well, why would they have that? And you just go with it. And, and the nice thing about that is, is that I think improv does give you that confidence because you've been in a situation you didn't think was going to work. And, and even if it doesn't work, that, and I think this is really the biggest thing, the difference that I see in confidence is it'll either work, I have the confidence that I can make this work, or I'm okay with the consequences if it doesn't. So if I do a belly flop on the ground, it'll probably hurt, but I'll be okay with it. If I go to speak in public in front of a bunch of people, I'll probably do okay, but if I don't, I'll probably survive. And that to me is the confidence to go, yeah, I'm going to go for it because I know it will either work or I'll survive and get through it. And I think improv, <laughs> I think improv gives you that a lot where you either do well at it or you go, well, I survived though. <laughs> One of the things that I do that I'm somewhat infamous for is in the sales process at BusyWeb, if somebody's ghosting me and they don't call me back, what I'll do is I'll leave a, I'll leave a love note on their voicemail. So I'll, I'll play a sad Sarah McLaughlin song and I'll get real close to the microphone and I'll say, well, John, it's been so long since we've talked and then let the music play for a while. And people ask me all the time, well, how, I, I, I can never do that. I can't get away. <laughs> but I think what you just identified is a really key component of my confidence in doing that, which is if not, am I okay with the consequence if it doesn't work out? Right. And that's exactly it. And I think that there's a lot of things that we've done that we didn't like the consequences and, and really probably the worst consequence that happens on a regular basis is that we get shunned or made fun of by friends, family, coworkers. And I think that's the biggest thing that pulls us down or prevents us from doing more stuff. Cause I've seen a lot of kids in church, four or five year olds who just wail away and start singing and doing all these things. And at some point, adults said, shh, quiet, don't do that. And then they stopped doing that. And now they won't sing. They can't sing because they've been told not to, to, to be quiet. And we used to joke about, we would, tell, we would try to get the kids to walk and to talk for the first year of their life. And then for the next 16, tell them to shut up and sit down. So I think that there is a lot of that where we are stifled by people. And it's often when you're young. But even in the business world, we get stifled by people. We get told by people that it's a bad idea, it's dumb, and, and we don't want to get mocked by them. We don't want to be wrong. Nobody wants to be wrong. So we won't try something because I can't be wrong if I don't do anything. But making a wrong choice, I mean, not making a choice is a choice. And so if you make a wrong choice, do it quickly so you can have time to correct it and make it better. But there's just so many times where that influence from other people really pushes us down and stops us from doing what we should be doing. Because of they, how, how it looks or how it might play. Right. We don't want to get, right. we don't want to get shunned by the public. And, and we see that in parenting where my kids, after Jacob Wetterling, my kids never bicycled outside of my sight. And I felt guilty if they went out to the mailbox by themselves. And I think that it's not because Jacob I would... Jacob Wetterling was a, a, a famous child abduction case. Right, in St. Joseph, Minnesota. Yeah. And, and, and after that, there was a lot of helicopter parenting that went on. 
And it wasn't that I was worried that I was, would lose my kid. It was I was worried about what the neighbors would think about me as a parent allowing my kid to go off and do stuff. And when I was a kid, we did that all the time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it just, it's different and you don't, you don't want to be made fun of or have that peer pressure at work, at home, whatever. So a lot of times we won't do something just because it's like the karaoke bar. There's a bunch of people who will get up and sing. There's a bunch of people who won't because I don't want to be made fun of if I go up and sing. And they might be great singers, but they don't want that peer judge review kind of a thing. I want to pivot back to a, to something that we talked about just that you talked about just a second ago, John, and that's the applications for business of confidence. You know, as as we look at this, the the goal of our podcast is dial it in and making small changes that can dramatically improve your business, your revenue, your your cash flow. And so, can you tell us a little bit about how confidence can play into sales? and how you might be able to open doors that might otherwise be closed. Right. Well, I think that as in what I know of sales, I'm not Zig Ziglar or anything, but uh, what, <laughs> I know of, what I know of sales, you know, being that subject matter expert on whatever the product is and whatever the benefit to the customers, because it really doesn't matter what the product is, the customer has that what's in it for me mentality usually. So being able to know that and be confident about that and to be able to share that with that person. If mm-hmm. I had to explain to someone why Excel was so good, I couldn't because I don't know enough about it. And I'm not that subject matter expert. And I don't want to say something wrong. And if I say Excel can do this and you know it doesn't, you're going to call me out on it and I don't want to be wrong. So I think that from a sales point of view, that confidence of I know everything there is to know about what I'm selling why I'm selling it, why it's important for you, and what it will do for you. And so from a sales point of view, I would say that that knowledge, knowledge is confidence in a lot of areas. And that's certainly in sales to know that stuff. I think the other part about confidence is that confidence keeps you moving forward, keeps you doing stuff, keeps you trying stuff, maybe trying a new area, trying a new approach, trying something else. A lot of confidence ends up manifesting itself in trying trying new things, trying a new hobby. And in sales, let's try a new approach. Let's try a new area. Let's try a new brochure, a new pamphlet, whatever. There's just so many times where we're worried it won't work, so we don't try anything. So I think that that's really, confidence helps you move forward. It's not always in the right direction, but it helps you move forward. And staying still is, in business is not a good thing. We, we, we need change because we can't do it the same way we've always done it. And if you look at Kodak, Kodak Film, mm-hmm. Kodak saw that, that digital was coming in. Kodak sat where they were and said, we're number one in film. We're going to stay here. We're not going to change. We're not confident in this new digital stuff. So we're going to be the film people. And the consumers all wanted digital. Kodak had to file bankruptcy. And the sad thing is, is that the uh, engineers at Kodak were the ones who invented digital photography. So had Kodak changed and moved forward, they could have been both number one in film and in digital. A lot of times we just don't want to make a change. And so confidence, I think, gives you that experience of making change and it's okay, making change and it's okay. Whereas people that are afraid to change lack that confidence. It's that trying new things. And that's where confidence can really help you move forward as a business. One of the things I know you're passionate about, especially with your podcast and just knowing you as long as I've had, 
to have that you're a genuinely good person. Growing your own confidence is something that, as you said, means something different for everybody else. But how can you inspire others to in their own confidence journey? Well, I think that one of the things that we do in Toastmasters is we it's a very safe environment and we uplift everyone, but we also have a mentorship program. And I think that that's a really important thing to look at is mentoring and helping other people. And I know that I do that in Boy Scouts. I'm a merit badge counselor for six different merit badges and just being able to help the youth of America move forward with their lives and become a little bit more confident is good. The podcast was my way of just trying to let everyone know about confidence and show that everybody's kind of in the same boat. We're all dealing with confidence. There's areas in my life I'm incredibly confident, you know, skills that I've learned over the years that I'm really good at. For example, like, and I don't want to brag, but I can tie my shoes without even looking. I've learned some skills like that, I know. But there are other things, you know, making beer or making wine or whatever, absolutely no clue how to do that. And those are the things, you know, some, some areas I'm really good, some areas I'm not. Working on the car, I can vacuum the floor in the car, and that's about it for the car. I can fill it with gas. But other than that, not a clue. And so I think that it's I think that it's interesting as you go forward, if you have a mentor, someone that can help you, and even just to let you know that you're not alone. You don't have to be alone. You don't have to do it alone. I think that's huge. And I know when I was working, I, I had my own business for a little while and reached out to someone else and said, am I doing this right? And it, there was a, I think it was SCORE, the Senior Corps of Retired Executives. Yeah, service Corps of Retired Corps. It's a long time ago. But they, uh, you know, they were nice and reached out, or I reached out to them and they said, sure, let's talk. And it was like, I guess I am doing it right, but I didn't know. And that doubt, that lack of certainty really eats at your confidence. So being able to base, you know, touch base with somebody that knows how things should be and to hear from them. Yeah, that's right. That's the right approach. You're doing it right. That's huge. So I would say reach out, get a mentor and then turn around and be a mentor. And even if it's within your own company, being a mentor is great because I I had a program with interns when I worked at the hospital and it was awesome because they asked questions that I just took for granted. So I learned a lot about the hospital because the interns asked these questions. It's like, what an annoying question. Now I got to go look that up and figure it out. But you learn a lot more about it. And so I think that mentoring and being a mentor would be the things that I would, I would talk about. In fact, the very first episode I did was on how to become or how to, how to get a board of directors, a series of mentors. And, you know, don't do it by yourself. Peak perspective with Jim Zugschwert. And it was, don't do it by yourself. Make sure that you are reaching out, getting other people, and whether it's for work or for your regular life, you know, you don't have to make these decisions by yourself. Reach out and get some help, get some guidance. One last question before we uh, end, and thank you so much for sharing as much as you you have. I'm going to turn the tables on you. What does confidence mean to you? Well, I think that... Confidence is an internal thing that I can see that you can't. I can pretend and project confidence, but I could be lying. And I think it means that I can have a reasonable chance of succeeding at whatever the task is based on 
the experience and knowledge that I've gained over time, but I also will survive the consequences if it doesn't happen. So some of it is I have the, con- I have the confidence to make a decision and do this or the confidence to not. Asking a girl out to a dance in high school, I have the confidence that if I ask her, it might be humiliating, but I'll probably still be here tomorrow to be fine. Or I could not ask her, and I'm okay with that too. Just saying, yeah, I didn't ask anyone. I didn't go to the dance. So to me, it's that ability to have a reasonable chance of success based on what I know, but to be okay with the consequences. I like that. I want to ask, I, I forgot one last question that I wanted to ask because we, we didn't talk about the converse of that. We're talking about building it, but there's also an overdrive of confidence. Why is overconfidence such a turnoff to people? Some of it is. I think because we don't have that confidence or we lack the confidence. Some of it is overconfidence comes off as cocky and self-assured. And I saw this in the hospital with doctors. And sometimes you'd have like a craniofacial doctor or a neurosurgeon and they came off as cocky or very self-assured. But at the same time, if you're going to have somebody take your kid's skull off, the skull cap off and rewire the inside, I want them to be confident. Dang right. And, and uh, so, yeah, I don't, I mean, <laughs> I've always wondered what, if doctors, you know, is passing 95% and is the 5% that I missed, was that appendix? Because we're taking out your appendix. It's like, oh, yeah, that's the one I didn't do well on in school. Um, I'd like them to have 100%. I'd like them to be very, very confident. When we see that outside of those kinds of situations, it can co- somewhat be standoffish or put off. It, a kind of a put off sort of a thing that we don't want someone to be that confident. That's just not okay to be that confident. You're, you should be more humble. So I think some of it is us projecting a certain amount of humility onto someone else. I wish they would be more humble, but I don't mind confidence. I think it's fun to, you know, if you watch Jim Carrey come into any scenario, he might not actually be feeling confident, but boy, he sure looks confident. Mm-hmm. And that to me is, I think it's fun. It's, it's powerful, but I also know deep down, he's not that confident. It, it, nobody could be that confident all the time. And, it, you know, there's something, whether it's doing his taxes or fixing his car, there's some point where he's not confident during the day. But when he comes in, it's showtime. And I like that. I think that's interesting. In a business setting, it can be difficult depending on who you are and what role you are. If you're the salesperson and you come in and say, hey, we've got some wonderful stuff for you today, I'm okay with that. If you're the accountant saying, we've got a lot of red tape and we're missing a couple of receipts, that might be a little over the top for that particular role. So, but I think I think that the, the there's just so many people living in that lack of confidence that they don't feel comfortable with people with that confidence. Like, how can I trust someone that doesn't know what's going on in the world? Awesome. John, thank you so much for joining us. John's podcast, Collecting Confidence, is available through all of your major podcast retailers. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks, John.